Hello, 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 and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This program is brought to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation with the help of the UTS Business School and broadcast all the way around Australia on the Community Radio Network. It was the 18th century philosopher Voltaire who once said, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. And with the federal government's record funding of health services, including $115 billion in 2021 and $467 billion over the Ford estimates, there's more than enough to amuse ourselves with here at Think Business Futures. It's a lot of money, a dizzying amount even. But what are the real stories behind that wall of zeros? Joining me to pull apart the portfolio is Dr. Stephen Duckett, Health Program Director at the Grattan Institute and former Departmental Secretary to the Australian Government Department of Human Services and Health from 1994 to 1996. In your research for the Grattan Institute, you found that although there are 35 items in the health budget measures table, just five of them account for 94% of the increase in funding under the federal budget. So it's obviously a very interesting place to start this discussion. What exactly are those five pillars of our long-term national health plan? So, so Max, it's, it is a really interesting budget. Uh, obviously, because of COVID, there's been a massive increase in the uh, in the health allocation, uh, about a five over five billion a year of uh, increased spending, which is ten times more than the budget increase last year, for example. So huge. But the the interesting thing is, some of this increasing spending is sort of a, a set of inevitables. And the the first the, the, there's as I said, five broad areas. First is is pharmaceutical benefits scheme. The second is COVID. The third is the Medicare benefit schedule, and the fourth is fourth and fifth really uh, aged care uh, in the health portfolio, with money additional money in the treasury portfolio too for health uh, for hospital spending. But so these these are big areas, and they, you'd expect to see some of these. If I just use the first couple as an example, the first, the biggest single area is the increase in the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, and this, in a sense, is an inevitable. That is. The government has already said, announced, that any new drugs recommended by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee for inclusion in the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme will be included. Full stop. End of story. So there's essentially it's a technocratic decision to recommend this uh, the, the new drugs. And what this budget provision does, amongst other things, is to say, look, if there isn't a recommended for recommendation for new drug next year, and we know there's some big drugs in the pipeline, big expensive drugs in the pipeline, uh, you're not going to have to find savings in the health portfolio. And there, there has been that sort of argument in the past that, that you, you need to offset some of this uh, big spending. So it, it's a fairly huge item, um, uh, $4 billion or so over a couple of years. But... As I said, it's a technocratic announcement. There were a series of other drugs, a series of new drugs announced at the same time. The second one is COVID. Now, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of money in COVID, but this provision is for the vaccine. Now, we may not have a vaccine this financial year. It's, it may be, may not be. But money is put in the budget, a couple of billion, for the vaccine, just in case. Now, I think that's the right thing to do. This is not a very big decision because it's pretty obvious if a vaccine comes along, the public expects to be able to get access to it. And so the fact that they've made provision for it 
if they didn't make provision for it, it would look pretty stupid. So, so the, the two biggest items don't involve any policy decisions really at all. Uh, so it's really quite, uh, quite an interesting and a challenge there. You've had experience looking at many budgets over your career. Do you think that generally health is one portfolio where politics doesn't generally feel welcome? Yes, Max, there are big differences uh, ideologically between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party uh, over, for example, health insurance and how much emphasis you put on health insurance and, and big differences in style of where you might want to do your investments. And so there are big political priority choices. This budget is the biggest increase in health I've ever seen in my life, so except Medicare, I think. But so it's it's actually huge. Um, but it's it's interestingly it's it's as interesting for what's in it as for what's not in it. And so you know, if you if you dribble down this list to aged care, big increase in in dollars in aged care, but there's a huge amount that's not there, for example. So if I just give you two examples, just look at aged care for a minute. So everybody has been seeing these horrible stories from the Royal Commission about the quality of care. And the Royal Commission on Aged Care Quality and Safety released a report late last year which said aged care is horrible and home care is horrible and people are dying on the waiting list for home care. And so whatever you think, about what ought to be done in aged care, expanding home care is the right thing to do. There are 100,000 people on the waiting list for home care and about of, of those 20, I think 25,000 have got a package but it's not, not the right level of package and 75,000 have no package at all. Now, these people have been independently assessed as needing a home care package. So it's not they've just come off the street and said, I want a home care package, give me one. There's an independent assessment process and they haven't got one, which means they're at risk of going into residential care, which is more expensive. So you would have thought, wow, the Royal Commission has said, you've got to do a lot. You've got to address this home care waiting list problem. It's costing you money and people are dying. You've got COVID coming along saying, and a whole lot of people dying in nursing homes. And people saying, oh, I don't want to go to nursing homes. I wonder if I can stay at home for a bit longer. And before COVID, everybody wanted to stay at home rather than going to a residential care anyway. So a whole set of factors which say the right thing to do is to expand home care. What did they do? Instead of putting in lots of aged care packages, they put in 23,000 when the need is 100,000. So it just is it's, it's less than a quarter of what is needed. And so the priority decision is interesting. Why didn't they put more money into home care? And I have got no idea because home care is cheaper than residential care. If, if Whatever comes out of the Royal Commission, the right answer is going to be more money on home care. And if you put more money into home care now, it will reduce the demand for residential care in the future. And so we, it might even save money. So it won't cost as much as you think. So, you know, and the home care system is a mess and needs to be totally redesigned, but you could have put money in now and not saying that, you know, over the next couple of years, we're going to redesign it. So some really peculiar uh, priority setting choices here. And we'll cut forward to aged care. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago, actually, on this show, we did cover the aged care sector. One of the changes that both our panellists wanted was a rehashing of the means testing. So one of the concerns more was that the structural funding model for aged care doesn't really reflect 
the population itself. Do you think that throwing 23,000 additional home care packages into the mix is going to make much of a difference at all? Or do you think that those, those structural issues are not changing under this budget and, in fact, 23,000 additional home care packages may actually make the problem far clearer? Putting in 23,000 packages is not a wrong thing to do at all. It is The problem with the home care packages is not enough. So they should have put in more than 23,000. So that's my first point. And the, the issues with residential aged care are really complex and the, the whole, in our view, the whole aged care system needs to be thrown up in the air and starting again. There's, there's probably not a single element of the residential aged care system which is properly designed, not a single element. So... Just to give you some examples, there's a thing in Australia called the Charter of Aged Care Rights. It's got the strength of a wet piece of lettuce. It's just nothing. There's not enforceable. There's essentially, you know, if, if you're not in a residential aged care, you've got no right, to, you know, the, the, you may not be able to get in. So there's, there's a, it's, it only applies if you're there and then it's not enforceable. You can't take, uh, if you're a resident of an aged care facility and, and you don't think your rights are being upheld, you can't take them to court. So it's, it's a really, you know, strange document. And, you know, the, the, the whole Aged Care Act that, we're taught, that, that governs this is all about stopping the Commonwealth Government spending money rather than protecting the rights of older people. So the whole thing needs to be thrown out and start again. And the, the, the way we fund nursing homes, residential aged care is all wrong. We, we have a single payment system. Um, we have an assets and means test, uh, which... Is is, un, is is probably poorly structured. So this budget does nothing to start the reform process. Now, the Commonwealth Government has said, oh, look, we can't do anything because the Royal Commission is still going to report early next year on everything. But it could have started to send some signals. As I said before, the Royal, there's been terrible stories coming out of the Royal Commission, terrible stories about the quality of services, terrible stories about... Uh, separate from the Royal Commission, deaths in aged care as part of COVID. There was a study done by the University of Wollongong where they divided people, divided nursing homes, residential aged care facilities up into a five-star rating system that applies in the United States, five-star rating system. Only one and a half percent of residential aged care facilities got a five-star. Most, and about 14% got a four-star. So there's a skew down to the bottom end of the market, and and this is in terms of staffing. Nothing was done, nothing at all was done in the budget to improve the staffing in residential aged care facilities, and yet we know the number of staff is inadequate and the type of staff is inadequate. So there's a huge agenda to be run in residential aged care, and this budget did nothing about it. And we'll jump to the opposite end of the age spectrum. Big changes to private health have also been announced with the maximum age for dependents being raised from 24 years old to 31. 
this will obviously have huge implications on young people struggling during COVID-19. So data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare in August of this year found that 44% of Australians have some sort of private patient hospital cover, while 53% had some form of general cover. But when it comes to young people, the statistics are particularly interesting. For those 25 to 29, only 26% of women and 21% of men were covered. So it's clearly a pitch to young people for private health. Now, the Liberal Party is saying that this will make the system, and I quote, simpler and more affordable. Do you agree with that assessment? So... So the idea behind this is that at the moment, if you do not join private health insurance before your 31st birthday and you decide to join the day after your 31st birthday, you have to pay 2% extra on your premium. And if you join on your 32nd birthday, you have to pay 4% on your premium and so on. So there's there's an increase you have to pay if you don't join before you're 31. And this is called lifetime cover. So this is one of the sticks that try and encourage people into, into uh, private health insurance. And what's happened was previously uh, you're only covered in your family cover up to 25 or so. And so there was this gap of six years between 25 when you were covered and 31 when you got a penalty for not being covered. And so the idea is that on your 31st birthday, you'll stop being covered by your family's policy and you'll start being covered by your own policy. So the theory is it will encourage more 31-year-olds to take out health insurance. I have got no idea whether that is going to work or not. So they're, they're hoping that it will they will have more younger people in uh, private health insurance and, and they'll stay in. But the thing that drives private health insurance is whether you've got money to pay for it. And incomes especially for young people who have been flat. And during COVID, they've actually gone down. You know, young people have been one of the the big groups affected by uh, the downturn of the economy with COVID. So I am not entirely sure. I'm not convinced that it's a radical overhaul, Um, you know, keeping stay-at-home 25, 26 and 27-year-olds further dependent on their families is... um, not immediately clear to me that that will make them more autonomous and more independent and willing to pay for their health insurance when they turn 31. No, yeah, it's more time in the nest, if anything. Do you think that there's an element, you've obviously mentioned that it goes back a very long way, government's trying to offset some of the big spending in their budgets. Is incentivising young people to stay in private health and obviously stay on the family's purse for a few years extra, is that a way of potentially offsetting some of these costs that have otherwise gone into public health measures by hopefully getting a large portion of the Australian population into private health? Is that possibly the logic behind this? Yes, but it's a flawed logic. So it's certainly true that younger people use health services less than older people. And so the more younger people you get into private health insurance, on average, premiums go down, on average. So that's why they want to get 31-year-olds in because they, by and large, don't use health services. And so they subsidise 61-year-olds. That's that's the argument. However, because 25-year-olds don't use health services very much, whether they're in health insurance or not, doesn't have much impact on the public system at all uh, because they don't use it and they don't use hospitals. 
So um, by and large. Uh, so, you know, the, it's, a, it's a flawed argument to say getting more younger people in will reduce demand. But what it will do is bring the average price of health insurance down, which might keep people in health insurance because they drop out of health insurance because the costs go up. And the argument is if you keep people in health insurance, it will reduce demand on the public hospital system. There's not much evidence that that is true, but that's what the policy argument is. Mm. And when you say that there isn't much evidence that that is true, is is this simply an economic decision that isn't necessarily taking into consideration a lot of those external variables that throw about when you're talking about health policy? Is this quite simply almost a balance sheet approach to health policy? Well, it's a, a combination of things, Max. The, basically, the the government subsidises people to take out health insurance, uh, middle-income and lower-income people to take out health insurance. And so the question is, if they didn't, if that, if people weren't in health insurance and that subsidy wasn't there and you spent it on the public hospital system, would you make money or not make money? That is, would that be better for the public hospital system and, and the public generally? And so it's, it's a really a complex economic argument because a lot of the people who you're spending the subsidy on would have health insurance whether there was a subsidy or not. So you, you, can, you can save a lot of money and not change much behaviour. So, so for a combination of reasons, the subsidy, the, there's a fairly big debate, but by and large the academic literature says the subsidy is a waste of money. You'd be better off spending it in the public sector. And so it's really a complex argument. But whether that's a balance sheet or not, as you would describe it, I'm not sure. Another one of these big funding packages that we've already mentioned so far, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So over the four years from 2020, the federal government will provide $370 million for new and amended PBS listings. So... Can you explain the changes to the funding model as opposed to what was already in existence prior to this budget? Yeah, so Australia has a very good pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And if a new drug is invented, it gets submitted to an organisation called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, which is a group of experts, of doctors and economists and epidemiologists and uh, who, who assess the new drug to see if it's worth it. Is it cost effective? Literally, is the cost worth more than the benefits? Or, is the, yeah, or vice versa? And the government has said, if the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee says a drug is worth it, we will list it. And so what with that 370 million or so that you announced that you mentioned is just the result of these people sitting around this table, judging all the evidence, Looking at the uh, what the randomised control trials, what the research says about this drug, does it work? How much does it cost? Is it worth it? And recommending to the minister that they list it, and the minister announces it in the budget and has a picture of himself with a kid who benefits from this drug. So it's a politici- it's politicised at one part and very bureaucratic and technocratic at another part. And what the what the budget is making provision for this year as well, and I think it's a good move is to say, look, we've already announced that if there's a new drug that works and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee recommends it, we'll pay for it. It's going to be listed. And we're not going to say to the health portfolio, you've got to find the money uh, for this. We'll find the money in the budget ourselves. And that's what some of the big spending this year is all about. 
which is essentially implementing a policy that's been in place for quite a few years now. Mm. And just for a quick case study, people would otherwise be paying $250,000 a year for two drugs used to treat cystic fibrosis that are now registered on the scheme. And under the government's new investment, they'll now pay only $40 per script with concessional people paying just $6.50. So obviously a huge change. It doesn't change really what is paid in total, Mm. but just is the government paying for it because the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee had said that $250,000 is worth it. And how difficult and expensive is it or has it been in the past to access drugs on this open market in Australia, or has the government always stepped in to an extent to subsidise for regular Australians? Uh, obviously, there are some drugs which are still not available in Australia. The pharmaceutical companies are not the world's most charitable organisations. Over the last decade, they've been taken over by venture capitalists and other investors, and they want to make a buck. I mean, that's their job. That's they their... They want to make a return for management and shareholders. And so if they have a monopoly, if they've, if they've been able to find a company that owns a drug and they've bought that company and actually brought the drug to market, they not only want to make the normal profit that any company wants to make, and pharmaceutical companies on average make bigger profits, they often want to make super profits. They want to make, they want to price gouge, and they do. And so the government is finds it increasingly hard to stand up to these places, these companies, uh, who who basically then they find patients who are going to benefit from this and put these patients in front of the TV cameras and say, look, this drug makes a huge difference to this individual. Why isn't the minister paying as much as we want the minister to pay, whether it's fair or not? Why isn't the government paying for this? And so it's a huge, becomes a very a political fight if the drug negotiators, the people in the health department say, look, we've assessed this and the and the real fair price is this. The company wants twice this and we recommend minister you don't pay it. And the minister then is under a lot of pressure to say, why aren't you paying why why aren't we listing that? And so it's a it's a very big political game. So it from what you said, it implies that there's quite an element of lobbying going on. Is is that true? Absolutely. And they and the the uh, drug companies are big funders of consumer groups, so-called consumer groups, who would benefit from their drugs and uh, they use them to lobby government to have their drugs listed. The front people are the doctors and the patients with the um, the bankers or the venture capitalists running all the way to the bank. So is being listed on the scheme good for pharma companies in terms of... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because it guarantees... So basically... Most people would not be able to afford these drugs, 250000 a pop or whatever you mentioned. So basically, government has to underwrite it, and government should for, if, it, if it's worth it, for equity reasons. And so basically, you know, don't forget, government has also underwritten the discovery of these. Most of the discoveries are actually first made in university, universities using medical research funding. And so there's huge public underwriting of these things, and it's taking the research from the bench top where the government has paid for it as part of the research grant into the testing in the community to see if it's efficacy, what it's like, and then manufacturing it. So there's there's been subsidies all along the way, but at the end point, someone owns the patent and is able to claim that that means they should charge what they like. Mm, and 
obviously a huge amount of money has also been invested into medical research in Australia. So is the logic potentially behind that to create this sort of circular system where drugs are created, tested in Australia, released in Australia, and then placed on the PBS? Is that part of the plan so that we don't have to field so many international drugs? Australia has 2% of the world population or something like that, some small number of you know, so the vast bulk of drugs are forever, that we're going to use in Australia are forever going to be invented and manufactured overseas. Uh, so, you know, you, we shouldn't be saying we're going to be self-sufficient in drugs because we never will be because there's going to be, and, you know, hopefully Australia, well, in fact, Australia is better on average in medical research than, than most countries. And so we probably produce more than 2% of the medical research discoveries and we benefit from everybody else's medical research discovery. So the, the whole point is to be a net contributor. So we 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 make money for our industry here. Um, so, but we do want to make sure that the taxpayers are getting value for money, and that the drugs that the taxpayers pay for it pay for are actually worth it, and the patients actually benefit. The federal government are providing $2.4 billion for Medicare-subsidised telehealth services, including $111 million for the extension of temporary COVID-19 health services until the 31st of March 2021. So the government announced it's developing options for a long-term adoption of telehealth beyond the pandemic, and the budget includes $18.6 million for the preparation of permanent telehealth infrastructure beyond March of 2021. So it's particularly interesting to say that we're clearly preparing for telehealth to be, and dare I say it again, but the new normal for healthcare. So when we take a larger look at this and we're talking about building permanent telehealth infrastructure across Australia, one of the big concerns for people would clearly be regional health services. So what sort of infrastructure would be required and how can the health sector pivot to accommodate this? So, Max, it's not as if telehealth is new. I think I found an article published 30 years ago about telehealth. I used to work in Queensland more than a decade ago where I was responsible for telehealth uh, expansion in that state. So it's not new. And so the government should have been, and when we think about telehealth, there's a huge range of things we might be talking about. Uh, During the pandemic, the most frequent sort of telehealth was a telephone consultation. You don't need a lot of infrastructure for a telephone consultation. There was a smaller number, which were video conference. And here, that's one of the issues in rural Australia where the connections for video conference, NBN and the like, is not nearly as good as it ought to be. And some telehealth is about telemonitoring, where there are monitors in to, to, to enable you to measure your health uh, and send the images or pulses or whatever it is down the line uh, for it to be assessed. So telehealth comes in a range of guises and it ought to be part of the ordinary way we do things in the health system and the government ought to have thought about how that was going to work a decade ago, not 10 weeks ago. So, you know, it is really slow off the mark and the fact that it hasn't got an ongoing telehealth policy in this year's budget is a disgrace because it's really, we should have been thinking about how how does the new technologies of telehealth and especially the video and telemonitoring technologies, how are they going to be incorporated? 
into the health system. And we should have thought about that a long time ago. And we should have uh, moved much more quickly than we are. And a decade ago, when you were obviously dealing with this yourself, so many technologies were still just a glimmer in our eye. Obviously, Skype and Zoom have made video conferencing as easy as anything for the average person now. It's no longer that sort of impenetrable technology. So you've obviously seen a decade pass since you were ser- you yourself were arguably in the same shoes as the government, thinking about how to roll out and effectively use telehealth. A lot of things have clearly changed. However, I'm sure that there are still some startling similarities between these two timelines. What do you think are some of those age-old problems that will still drag at the heels of telehealth in 2020? Well, one of the things the government has to worry about is, is fraud. Telehealth ought to be part of the ordinary set of interactions that you have with, for example, your general practitioner. And so what we said when we looked at this for Grattan Institute a couple of months ago was to say the way telehealth works ought to be integrated into primary care. It ought to be something separate, in which case you say one of the conditions for a telehealth item is it ought to be only available if you've got a relationship with that general practitioner, for example, so that you don't have a fly-by-night company setting up and saying, we're just going to provide telehealth items independent of any other ongoing relationship you have with your general practitioner. So thinking about how it fits in to the consultation, to, to the ongoing relationship, how it fits into a chronic chronic illness environment where you want to encourage longitudinal ongoing relationships. And so you've got to think these things through. And unfortunately, the government hadn't and didn't as part of the rush to implement the telehealth item. So it's a good idea to do telehealth, but they should have put more thinking into it over the last decade. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as Voltaire would have wanted, take some time to consider these things for yourself. I've been your host, Max Tillman, and I'll see you next week.